Joining the podcast is Destiny Bryant, a candidate for district attorney in the Alcove Judicial Circuit, covering Walton and Newton counties. Destiny, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So let's get started by meeting you. Can you describe your background and tell us why you're running for district attorney? Yes. So I have been a prosecutor for almost eight years. My background primarily pertains to cases that relate to protecting children. So child abuse cases, sexual assaults against children, human trafficking cases, and all types of homicides that kind of relate to those types of components. That really comprises the most of my experience. And I'm running for district attorney because I want to be able to take my office to a level of not only protecting victims, but making the changes that I would like to see in terms of criminal justice system in Newton and Walton County. We hear that your race for district attorney might be a little bit in limbo. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So there is a position that was created by an appointment. Our DA, Layla Zahn, she was appointed to fill a seat for Superior Court Judge in Newton and Walton County, which created a vacancy for her seat of district attorney. So right now we have our chief in the office who is acting district attorney. However, the law based on the constitution and statute does give the governor the authority to appoint to fill that vacancy. And if so, it would cancel our election for 2020 and push the election to 2022. Okay, so this is somewhat like the Supreme Court issue that we're that we're seeing from from elsewhere in the state, right? Yes. So similar to the Supreme Court issue, as well as an issue with the district attorney's race in Athens, Georgia, where that race is essentially canceled now as soon as the governor makes an appointment for that position as well. Okay. So for the most part on this show, we are focused on the state legislature and the roles legislature, legislators and the governor play in enacting the policies that Georgians live under. But local officials like district attorneys play an important role in how some of those laws in our state are carried out. Can you describe for us what the role of a district attorney is? Yes. So the role of the district attorney is to uphold the Constitution by prosecuting cases or prosecuting individuals who have violated the law. We would have to take an oath as district attorney to push forward without fear, without favor, without affection, and to pretty much represent safety in our community. Great. Without fear, without favor, and without affection. Is that part of the oath or is that a way that you describe it? That is part of the oath, but I keep that also as part of the way I describe it because sometimes when cases come forward that could be challenging, you really do have to remind yourself what is your oath as a district attorney? And so you have to make sure you're always upholding that so that when cases come forward, you're pretty much putting yourself in check to decide what am I supposed to be doing here? How do I make sure that I'm always representing the interests of the community? That makes a lot of sense. So several DAs have been elected in recent years pledging to break with the tough on crime mindset and to pursue reforms to the criminal justice system that would reduce mass incarceration, encourage treatment instead of criminalization for substance abuse and mental illness, and also move toward ending cash bail. In this role, would you prioritize adopting a reform mindset and a break from the historical role that prosecutors have played? Absolutely. I have pushed my campaign and my platform on the basis of pushing for reform in our system. Our system historically in our circuit has been about punishment. 
we do have some accountability courts right now that help with treatment. So we have drug courts and we have mental health courts and veterans courts, but I still have an issue with mass incarceration. And so addressing mass incarceration and not only individuals who are in jails or in prisons, but also honestly individuals who are on probation. Uh, we have a history in our circuit of establishing long probation sentences for offenders as well, which I think is just as serious as mass incarceration. So that is definitely something that I am pushing to reform and I want to address in my circuit head on. While we're on the topic of probation, uh, let's go ahead and um, dial into a question that we have for you on that, which is, despite nationally recognized criminal justice reforms, Georgia has more than 400,000 people under probation as of the year 2018, which is the highest rate in the nation. Folks under supervision can end up incarcerated if they fail to pay fines and fees or commit technical violations of their probation, like you mentioned a, a moment ago. How would your office approach failure to pay these fines and fees or these technical violations to probation? And um, you already kind of laid this out, but um, it seems like working to avoid recidivism is a goal for you. So how, how, what would your approach be? ultimately? Good question. So number one, I would say that I would not support my assistant district attorneys asking for prison or jail time over a technical violation. I think if there is a way to make sure that we're understanding what's the basis of the technical, what is the root cause of it, and addressing that root cause, then I would rather go that route. So say, for instance, if the technical violation is what we call a dirty drug screen, which is essentially uh, possessing, consuming any type of drug while you're on probation, instead of sending that person back to jail or back to prison, let's use that to try to put them into a treatment program. If the issue as far as the technical is them not paying fines and fees, well, let's find out why. We are in the middle of a pandemic right now. and We have a large number of people who are unemployed and some of those people might not have criminal histories. Well, now add on the component that someone is a convicted felon that will make it even harder for them to get a job. So we need to find other ways to address circumstances and not just look at a piece of paper and decide, okay, if you fit on a grid, you've got this technical, you're about to go to jail this time. That totally makes sense. So let's change our conversation a little bit here to some more current events related topics. Uh, following the murder of George Floyd, activists have demanded changes to laws and policies that would increase accountability for police misconduct. The relationship between prosecutors and police departments has come under scrutiny in this context. What message are you internalizing from demonstrators about how the handling of police misconduct needs to change? I've actually talked to a lot of demonstrators and I went to a demonstration this past Saturday as well in my community and the main thing I can say is that people are angry. People are angry across the board, um, both Democrats and Republicans, black, white, young, old, people are angry. And for the most part, people are upset about the idea of a law enforcement officer being able to harm anyone pretty much with impunity. And so I know my community wants to see those changes. I am open to those changes, but I also want to make sure that I'm not going so far over that I am casting a bad light on officers who really do their jobs well. Um, I think ultimately we need the police. If someone breaks in my house, I'm calling the police, right? So we need to just find ways to maintain those good relationships, not only helping 
the community understand law enforcement, but mainly helping make sure our law enforcement understands the community. And that's why I think other components that I'm looking for in terms of reform do involve better engagement under better circumstances between law enforcement and police officers. But I also think it means letting my community know that if there is unfortunately a circumstance that's even remotely similar to George Floyd, I won't be afraid to prosecute a police officer. If it comes down to that, I will do that. I will do everything that I can to make sure I protect the community because ultimately I'm accountable to my constituents and that's it. So going beyond just the powers granted to you as a DA, what changes would you like to see made to state or even federal law to increase accountability for police misconduct? What I would love to see um, is a requirement that law enforcement will automatically have that immunity going forward. Um, That has become a hot topic recently, whether or not law enforcement will get qualified immunity if they are acting in their duties. That's major because now we see a lot of law enforcement officers acting in their duties and the result is still tremendous harm to an individual, but they can't get the type of remedy that they need. Another thing I want to make sure of is that there are requirements that DA's offices and police offices have protocols in place. Right now, there's no requirement that any protocols are in place. There's no review board to make sure that the protocols are appropriate. There's no checks and balances on either office. And so I think it's important to establish statutes that address that, what will be the standard and who will make sure that both law enforcement officers and district attorney offices are being held to that standard. Great. Just to kind of like really dial in on this, if you could you take all of the powers into your hands of the DA for a single day and make massive changes all in one day, what is, what is the first thing you would do related to these particular issues? The first thing I would do is address these sentences. Um, as I said, our circuit historically gives massive amounts of probation time or prison time for something you could literally go the next county over and it wouldn't be that way. Uh, That's problematic to me because when you look at the demographics of African-Americans and other people of color who are subject to mass incarceration, I don't think you can know those stats and kind of turn a blind eye to how we conduct business in the office. And so the very first thing I would do is address the sentencing structure to make sure that the attorneys are doing what is actually reasonable compared to the offense that took place and also requiring that the attorneys look a little bit deeper than the case file to see is this person actually a good candidate for some type of service. Uh, Mainly I'm speaking towards individuals who are juveniles. Um, Right now, our office does not offer anything to juvenile offenders, and we don't offer anything to youthful offenders. We don't have any programs for youthful offenders, and there aren't any that are planning to be in place. I think addressing that population is major, and both of those things, I think, push forward a new trajectory for the circuit, and that's definitely what I would seek to do, even if I could be DA for a day. So Black folks make up 
31% of the population of Georgia, but make up 58% of people incarcerated in prison or jail. And this is, again, according to data from 2018. Black Georgians are also subject to disproportionate enforcement of criminal laws in our state. Do you think that addressing sentences is the most important tool for correcting racial disparities disparities in the criminal justice system or and or are there any additional tools? I think that's an important tool, but I think there are additional tools as well that include working better with law enforcement officers. With everything that's been going on from the Ahmaud Arbery case, the Breonna Taylor case, as well as George Floyd, I've actually read and heard of a lot of narratives where white people have been stopped by police and have been let go for the same crime that a black person or another person of color would actually get arrested for. And so to me, focusing on sentencing is not enough because we have to go back to what was the nature of the original arrest. And so some people would hear those stats that you just read, Megan, and think, well, it's just because black people commit more crime. No, it is because black people are being arrested for more crimes, whereas you might have a white person who is let go on scene or charges get reduced or a phone call gets made and we don't see that person anymore. So I think addressing it from the police level as well. But I think another important factor is making sure that the office is actually working in the community before someone comes in contact with the criminal justice system. When you look at what is it that can make a person more prone to be in contact with the criminal justice system, you see why black people are still being incarcerated at higher rates. When you look at the trauma that comes along with it, if you have an individual who gets incarcerated and they have children, well, guess what? Now their children are living in a household where at least one parent is incarcerated, which makes them more likely to have drug abuse problems, to be outside the home getting in trouble. And now you have a lot of generational incarceration that starts to take place as well. So I think as the DA's office, I have a role in making sure I interrupt that pipeline as well to reduce even the children that start to grow up in my system. So if you're okay answering this question, I have one that I'd really like to get your opinion on, which is in light of what you just said, or perhaps in addition to it, what is the one thing you want to drive home to white folks related to the unfair and um, unreasonable incarceration or higher incarceration levels of black folks? The one thing I would want to drive home is that there's more than meets the eye. And I think um, historically, the idea has been we address crime by harsh sentencing and that reduces recidivism. It does not reduce recidivism. And based on my work with children pertaining to sexual assault cases, I became more aware of how adverse childhood experiences really impact recidivism and introduction to the criminal justice system. So number one, if there is a care for black people and reducing incarceration rates, then what we need to be doing is more targeted efforts in the community to address some of the things that cause people to get into criminal activity in the first place, as well as working with our police officers. But another thing we have to be aware of is if we have these high rates of incarceration right now amongst black people, and we also have a lot of incidents with police misconduct resulting in deaths, if even if you don't care about black people, if you go along with a system like that, what's gonna happen next when the government decides, okay, well, maybe it's another group we need to be taking care of, so to speak. 
maybe it's another group that we need to channel laws that will address because now we all know that the laws on the war on drugs mainly affected black people. Well, what's gonna happen next if it's something else? And you're seeing that now with the opioid epidemic, now that there are more white people who are being affected, you're seeing a lot of laws change for drug laws. So I think it is in everyone's best interest to have laws that are fair, to have laws that are executed well, and to have a society that is more concerned with actually taking care of each other and addressing needs versus putting someone away for as long as you possibly can to just keep them away from society. It just doesn't work like that. Let's talk a little bit about cash bail. Reformers argue that requiring cash bail effectively punishes people with low incomes by requiring them to remain in pretrial detention when they can't pay. Let's talk about how you approach the issue. Um, Do you support legislative changes that would eliminate it? And if so, what tools do you have as a DA to reduce the number of people kept in prison because they cannot afford bail? It's a great question. So when I have previously been asked about cash bail, I always feel like I'm on the fence about it. I agree that there are a number of people who are being held in custody prior to their case being resolved. Um, And I I do believe that for smaller offenses, misdemeanors uh, like shoplifting or something like that, I don't see a government interest in making sure a person is detained for a long period of time um, beyond the day it takes to process them in or anything like that. But I kind of get on the fence when it comes to other offenses that cause harm to another individual. When I think about serious offenses like sexual assaults, I honestly, if I were a victim, I would be terrified to know that there was a system in place that would allow someone to fingerprint into jail and be released shortly thereafter. That would terrify me. And so what I always say is I qualify the answer. You know how all lawyers do. It depends. Um, So I would first of all say that as a concept, I agree, people need to be released from custody as soon as possible if the offense is one that does not endanger the public in terms of harm to another person. And number two, what I will always make sure of, whether there is a cash bail legislation in place or not, I would always make sure that my attorneys are working as quickly as possible on cases where the person is in custody. The reality is just because you get arrested does not mean you're guilty. And if you think they're guilty, you should expeditiously work to make sure they go where you feel like they need to be. So either way, I would definitely push for those cases to be handled quickly in my office. I just don't know if I can go all the way and say for every offense there needs to be no cash bail. Um, But I would definitely implement a policy that would require my attorneys to also um, not only just review those cases, but every, say, 30 days, make sure if this person is still in custody and they cannot afford a bond and this offense is not one that harms a person, we as the state need to be moving for them to be released. We should not always have to wait on a defense attorney to file a motion for us to do the right thing. That makes sense. So I like how you qualified that. It's basically not a one-size-fits-all situation. Right. So criminal charges and convictions can trigger detention and deportation proceedings for people who are not U.S. citizens, which subjects them to far greater collateral punishments and sometimes takes them away from their families. 
Uh, these impacts serve as disincentive for immigrants to report crimes at all. Do you think that considering immigration-related consequences when making charging decisions is an important thing for DAs to do? And would you use discretion in charging decisions to minimize the immigration-related consequences for minor offenses? Yes. Uh, for minor offenses, I would definitely consider making the adjustments needed. I have done that before in the past as a prosecutor. Um, ultimately, when you look at immigration, you're still looking at individuals who have families. You're looking at individuals who uh, sometimes have lived in the United States for a number of years. And so the thought of removing a father from their wife and from their child because they have a misdemeanor driving offense due to their driver's license, to me sounds ridiculous. And so if there are ways that I can make sure that someone is being held accountable without triggering anything else where the consequence to me kind of outweighs the harm, then I would definitely make those adjustments as necessary. We've run through a lot of issues that face DAs during this discussion. Are there any other issues that you're focused on in this race and that you'd like to discuss? The main thing that I'm focusing on um, is working with my school system. I am really passionate about addressing the school to prison pipeline um, because I am tired of seeing child after child be exposed to the criminal justice system and time go on and years later, I see them again and the reality is that there are a large number of individuals, if they are given a chance, if they are given guidance, if they are given the things that they actually need, they won't be in the criminal justice system. And so I really want to work with my school board and the education system to kind of recreate how is it that we protect these children and stop them from going into the criminal justice system. That is huge for me. And another thing that's huge for me is of course protecting our victims. Right now, our office does not really have any initiatives in place to educate the public about safety. So we don't have anything in place to educate the public about domestic violence, about sexual assault, about elder abuse. And I want to be able to champion those efforts on the front end. I don't want to wait until a case gets on my desk because the reality is those crimes are severely underreported. And so if we don't get out in the community those are the crimes where people are tremendously dangerous to the public. Those are the ones that we need to get ahead of to making sure we are protecting individuals and giving the sentences that are appropriate. But right now, we don't have those efforts either. So it's more of a twofold effort with pushing forward progress, reform, but also heavily focused on protecting victims in our community. Destiny, we really appreciate you joining the podcast today and sharing your views. If people would like to learn more about your campaign, how can they do that? Yes, they can go to my website, Destiny4DA, that's D-E-S-T-I-N-Y-F-O-R-D-A.com. They can also find me on Facebook, Destiny Bryant for District Attorney. Destiny Bryant is a candidate for district attorney for the Alcove Judicial Circuit that covers Newton and Walton counties. If you live in those counties, be sure you go all the way down your ballot to make sure your voice is heard for all kinds of offices, not just the national ones. Destiny, thank you for joining the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it.